Haggai chapter 2, I'm going to read to you from verse 10 to the end of the chapter, and uh, I trust that God's going to really speak to us today. It's such a beautiful, beautiful um, window into the mind of God and how he deals with us. So let's read together. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, as, as the Lord of hosts. Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty Measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms, of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So, Up to now, in what we've understood about what's going on in this letter, we've seen the amazing way that God revives his people, that God starts speaking to an otherwise quite apathetic people, people who are not really walking with him, they're not walking in obedience to him, they are um, more concerned with their own prosperity and their own security, and God chastises them as he speaks to them through the prophet Haggai. And the amazing and awesome thing is that the Holy Spirit moves in their hearts and it talks about the Spirit working in their lives to bring about a response. They actually listen to Haggai, they listen to God, and they immediately respond in obedience to him, even though they've been walking in, obedience, in disobedience for years. And we've been thinking about this way that God moves at this ground level sort of perspective of people disobedient, hearing God's word, and the Spirit of God doing something extraordinary in them 
to bring about amazing revival among God's people. And talking about how this has happened so many times through history. And how this is probably the most urgent need of the 21st century church in London. The thing that we want to cry out for, long to see God do. That he would revive us. That he would move in extraordinary power to bring about transformation and obedience and a pursuit of holiness and a trust in him and a complete dedication of our lives and discipleship to him. The willingness to lay everything down. So as we trace the storyline, we've been looking at this at very much at ground level, just the blow by blow, the unfolding of the events in this book. And of course, it's all, in, in one sense, can be taken for us as a picture of the way God desires to build his church. They're building a temple, a physical temple, the gathering wood for the building of that temple. And we are called as God's people to build his spiritual temple, the church, and in fact, to be ourselves living stones, part of it. Now, In this last section, it's like we jump up 20,000 foot and we get a bird's eye view. God's eye view of the way that he deals with people, the way that he deals with you and me. And it unfolds in these sort of four successive uh, unfolding moments in this section. And I want to just walk through them with you one at a time because... There is no doubt that this is a pattern. It's a pattern that you see again and again in the Bible. And it's something that you will have experienced very much on a personal level in God's dealings with you. And uh, if you are ever confused about the work of God in your life, this might help give you a roadmap, an understanding of how God works in us to revive us and transform us. So let me open this up for you. It begins with a kind of a diagnosis of their essential problem. I don't think that they fully understood their spiritual condition. I don't think that they had fully grasped what was wrong in their hearts. So what God does is he starts to uncover it. The greatest danger, if you're a Christian or a believer in God, is the problem of self-deception. The problem that you can think things are different to how they are, that you think that you are in a good place with God. And the danger, of course, always in religious devotion, um, in worship, in attendance of church, in doing the things that you think are Christian to do, is that you can be engaging in a kind of self-deception. So what God does is he, he basically unfolds a parable for them to lift the lid on their self-understanding of what was going on in their hearts. And he does it in this somewhat seemingly obscure way. I don't know if you were tracking with what was going on in this early part, where God prompts Haggai to ask the priests, what happens if you put holy meat, remember, this is meat that's dedicated for the temple, into the fold of your garment. If they did that, their garment became holy. But he said, if your garment then touches something else, like some food, does that holiness get transmitted? And they say, no, it doesn't. Now, if you touch a dead body... The uncleanness is transferred to you under Old Testament law. What then happens if you touch something else? He said that uncleanness is then transferred. Now the essential point you've got to get from this is that the uncleanness, the defilement, transfers or travels more easily than cleanness. And this is something we experience in day-to-day life, but it's also a spiritual principle. So for example, if you... um, If you were to have oily hands, 
I don't think there's many mechanics among us just looking around. But let's say you've been trying to fix your bike and you've got oily hands. If you then touch your clean clothes, do your hands become clean? They don't, do they? The opposite is true, that the dirt is sort of transferred to the unclean, to the clean garments. Similarly, you've probably heard me use this analogy before, but let's say you're out eating al fresco at St. Christopher's Place behind Oxford Street. You know, there's all that area with beautiful tables out in the open air. And there's nothing more lovely, is there, than eating in the open air in London. You've got this beautiful bowl of soup of the day. And uh, as you're eating it, a pigeon flies over and poos into your bowl of soup. At that point, do you then add a bit more clean water and think to yourself, wow, there's more clean than unclean in there. Things are going to be all right. I'm just going to enjoy this soup and put it to the back of my mind. The majority of this soup is clean. I'll just eat around the poo. Is that how you deal with it? I don't think so. You probably vomit, tip it on the floor, run away. I don't know what you do. But whatever you do you suddenly get put off al fresco dining for life, don't you? Now, what God is helping them to understand is this is exactly our problem, our condition, the problem of the human heart. That He says it to them here uh, in verse 14. He says, then Haggai answered, and he's sort of explaining to them the essential problem, what had been going wrong in the community. He says, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offered there is unclean. Now, at first glance, it seems intensely unfair. God calls for obedience, and we obey. And then God says, it's not good enough. It's unclean. Your sacrifices are unclean. Your work for me is unclean. Everything you do seems to me to be tainted. But when we actually start to look at our own hearts, we realize how accurate this is. That it is, although our desire is to look at ourselves with something like approval a lot of the time, you think about, you start to analyze what's really going on in your heart on a day-to-day basis. Think about the best things that you do. Aren't they tainted to some degree? Think about when you're generous. Are you one of the, the people who, when you are approaching Christmas or birthdays, you always give gifts? You know, you're on the front foot, you're like, I'm organized, and I, I think ahead, and I care about my friends, and I give them gifts. And obviously, the purpose of gift-giving is that you're a generous person. Generosity, by its definition, is selflessness, isn't it? Do you then feel a little bit of resentment if next year your friend doesn't return the favor and give you a gift in return? And you come around to the second Christmas and you're still giving away gifts and no one's giving them back to you. Has anyone been in that position? Now, if you ever feel anything of a kind of frustration or resentment or annoyance with your friend, then all that's doing is uncovering that your motives weren't so clean in the first place, were they? That what was essentially supposed to be selfless is actually potentially quite self-serving. You think about when you serve, you know, I've had it put, and I think this is really a helpful way of thinking about it. You don't really know if you have a servant heart until someone treats you like one. So if you are someone who's engaged in service, you know, you, you like to serve your friends, go around and help them out with things when they're going through a tough time, or you serve at church. 
If that is done without any thanks or appreciation, do you feel hard done by? A little bit resentful, a little bit annoyed. You know, no one's noticing how hard I'm working. I think this is just human, right? I'm not trying to point the finger. I'm just saying that this is an example of what God is saying. That it's, we cannot engage in, in good works without them being in some way tainted by self-interest, desire to be recognized, desire to be loved, a way that's reflecting glory back upon ourselves. And Haggai speaking to them, by God speaking to them through Haggai and saying, look, this is what it's like when I look at you. You see good things that you're doing for me. I see right into your hearts. I know the condition of the human heart and how uncleanness seems to taint everything. Now, if you can't grasp this, this is kind of the fundamental first step in understanding how Christians view the human condition, the problem of sin. The sin cannot be uh, something that is outweighed by goodness, but rather sin is something that infuses and affects and contaminates the entirety of your life. And that's not to say that you are entirely sinful, but it's rather to say that everything you do becomes in some way defiled by the self-interest and pride and love of idols that's in our hearts. So the first thing God wants to do is to uncover this as a kind of diagnosis at the beginning of this section. He's saying, it's like we're stepping back and we're saying, okay, when we look at the life of the community, what was it that God was frustrated with with them? And it wasn't even just the fact that they weren't building the temple. It was that this sin had defiled everything, that their hearts were not set on God and they hadn't come to him for cleansing and forgiveness and purifying of their lives. I know that in this room there's probably two kinds of people. Some of you may well not be... Uh, religious types or Christians in any way. And so the way this applies to you is, of course, to recognize that that sense you have, you say t- to yourself, I'm, I'm basically a good person. There are definitely things in my life I don't want people to know about. But if we just ignore those for, for a moment, the rest of me is pretty good. And God's saying, no, 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 the, the whole thing is contaminated. And for most of us, we are... We love Jesus. We go to church. We want to worship him. We want to be part of his kingdom. And he's saying to us, friends, the danger always is that you engage in a kind of self-deception. That the heart of your faith becomes a void when you lose this essential dependence upon God and this essential humility that recognizes your unworthiness and your need for his grace. This is the first step. It goes on and shows them a second thing, which is how God deals with you to show you that you're a sinner and seeks to humble you. So in the next part from verse 15 to 17, he says to them, he describes to them the problem that they were facing for these last 17 years, where he says, before you did any of this work for me, what was going on? He says, your lives were, you were struggling. Your wine vats were empty. You'd put 20 measures of wine in and you come back and it's halved. Now either your neighbor's stealing it or it's, you, there's a hole in the bottom or whatever's going on, something's going wrong. You gather grain from your fields and it's going moldy in your barns. Now this is something that every one of us has experienced but potentially failed to recognize. I don't mean 
your grain's been going moldy, <laughs> um, or your wine vats are half empty. Probably true for most of us. But what I'm talking about is God's, God's active involvement in your life to bring you to a point of recognition, of humility, to kill independence in your heart and understand that you live by God's grace alone. Now, one of the reasons why we, we find, I think particularly as Westerners, we fail to see this work of God in our lives is because so much of what we see in life is on our understanding happening by the natural laws and cause and effect. So we fail to see God's active involvement in our lives because so much of what we see around us we can explain away as just the natural course of things. And what God's showing them here is actually what they maybe had failed to recognize was that the the problems that they were facing, the the difficulties they were facing on a day-to-day basis just to put food on on, on the plates of their children, for their children at the dinner table, was God actively involved in their lives, opposing and obstructing and making their lives more difficult for a single purpose, to bring them to a point of humility. I think that God can do this to us in a couple of ways. And if you've come to faith, you're going to recognize something of this. One of them is through the physical needs that he can induce or bring about to bring you to a point of humility. That's what he was doing in this community. And it may well be the case that at some point in your life you experience God's obstructing power to humble you. You thought you were so independent and able and capable. You thought that your life was going on a good trajectory and then God came and intervened and he stopped you dead in your tracks. Some tragedy hit you. Or some disappointment came your way. This is the way God deals with many people in order to bring them to a point where they recognize, I cannot live without God and his favor upon my life. It can be through material lack. It can be through sickness. Yours or someone else close to you. It can be through blocked opportunities. Whatever it is, God wants you to understand that you cannot be independent of him. He does this in us even when we're spiritually healthy because he constantly wants to bring us back to himself independence. It can be through physical need. The other way that God does this is, is potentially more through a, an emotional, spiritual understanding of your need of him. So even when your life seems perfect on the surface, it may not be the case that you have lack. It may be the case that your career is taking off. Your grades are all coming in and you're happy with them. You've got friends all around you. Everyone would look at your life from the outside in and think you've got it together. And yet you come to a point in your heart where you realize that there is a deficiency, a void, a sense of need. Where there is some lack, some unhappiness, some basic misery at the center of your life. And God's saying, this is my work in your life, not because I am unkind or cruel but because it is important that you understand that you cannot go far without me. People begin to experience guilt sometimes for the first time out of nowhere. You were living your life in a kind of blasé, 
in different way, and then suddenly one day you start to feel the pangs of regret and of guilt, and it starts to eat away and gnaw at your conscience. You can start to feel loneliness to a degree like you've never felt before, isolation, being cut off from true intimacy and security in life, even fears that you never had before. Maybe because you're facing new responsibilities you've never faced. But when anxiety begins to eat its way at your heart, this is God's way of teaching you your need for him. And so we see God saying, look, this is my analysis of you. You're defiled and you don't realize it. And this is how I deal with you. I seek to humble you, whether by some outward experience or whether just directly working on your heart, showing you your need, showing you your lack. And the important thing is how we respond to that. You see how he says it in verse 17 here. He says, I struck you in all the products of your toil, blight, mildew, hell, yet you did not turn to me. You can dismiss your situation and white-knuckle it and just hope that things will get better. The question always is, will you humble yourself and turn to God? Now, friends, this is always, always, always the first step when somebody experiences a spiritual renewal before God. Do you remember how Jesus described this pattern in the Sermon on the Mount? The first of those Beatitudes, the very first thing he says to to his disciples when he's teaching them the core essentials of what it means to be part of his kingdom. And he begins in this way. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unless God has brought you to a point where you realize that your poverty before him, your bankruptcy, your emptiness, and brought you to your face, the rest of what he has in the kingdom of heaven cannot be yours. Jesus said it in the way that he described the only way into the kingdom of God is like a child. This is so liberating because we love to take responsibility upon ourselves and weight upon ourselves because it gives us a sense of achievement or a pride. And God says, no, the way to him is always empty-handed, open-handed, bringing nothing Then he goes on and starts to speak to them in a third way. He starts to talk to them about his radical and disproportionate grace as they respond to him. I want to reread these verses to you because they're so important in understanding the work of God in our lives. From verse 18, he says this. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now, this would be incredibly easy to misinterpret what God's doing here. If you understood this as a kind of reward for their labors. So they turn to God and they've begun rebuilding the temple. And then God says, from this day onwards, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, your, vines, your, your, your wine vats are going to be full, your barns are going to be full, and you're going to experience blessing and prosperity. And the, the natural, human, logical way of looking at this situation would be to say, there we are. That, that's, exa- that's exactly what we assumed God did. That when you're obedient, he blesses you. When you're disobedient, he, he, he curses you. And that the more obedient you are, the more he's going to bless you. 
Of course, that only is to play into the basic misunderstanding of how sin and grace work. It would be, that would only make sense if there was a kind of just recompense for your labors. In other words, that your labors were in some way proportionate to the amount of grace that God blesses you with. Now, you know what that's like in day-to-day life. So when you go to work, you expect to be paid for the hours you work. Unless you're a city lawyer, in which case, good luck with that. You expect to be paid. You expect that there is a just recompense, an equivalence. I work this much and I get paid this much. I'm part-time and it's, it's reflected in my salary. And what God does here is he completely obliterates that way of understanding and that way of thinking because there is no proportion or proportionality here to the way God blesses them in relation to their obedience. In fact, you've got to notice here how little they have done. We are talking here a matter of weeks since they began working on the temple. And what God, he tells them how much they've done. He says, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. All, these, all they've achieved so far is rolling a few bricks into place. And then God's saying, I lavishly, I'm going to pour grace on your lives. They've achieved virtually nothing. There's no accumulation of righteousness, no accumulation of good works. And God's favor is shining upon them like the sunshine. His blessing is being poured out upon them in a way that they can barely contain the amount of grace and favor that they're experiencing. Now this, my friends, is exactly how Jesus described the grace of God. I want to give you a few examples of this. These will be familiar to you, but I want you to look at it through this lens of the the disproportionality of what God is doing here. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? How he angrily demanded from his father his share of the inheritance, and then he went away and spent it all on prostitutes and wild living. He reaches his lowest ebb. It's the same pattern that we've been describing here where God humbles him and brings him to a point of physical need. He's literally hungry and humiliated. And at that point, there's a, he comes to his senses, Jesus says. He recognizes the need to return to the Father. And when he comes back to the Father, he has a little speech prepared. He says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, even that would have been a gracious act if the father had done that. Because he had no right to work upon his father's fields. This is the untrustworthy son with character that's demonstrably at fault here. But the father doesn't just give him a backroom job. Like, okay, if you wash dishes for the next 30 years, maybe you can eat at my table one day. Instead, he says, bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. A ring and shoes. He says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father is unbelievably gracious and lavish towards him. It's so, it's so offensively unfair that the brother who's been laboring all this time, the older brother who did not spend the money on prostitutes but has been serving the farm, is irritated to the core. He says, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And we suddenly get a window into how grace works, that it is profoundly unfair. And that's a good thing, because we need God to be unfair with us. Remember also, Jesus told a parable about a man who owns a, a vineyard. You know, you get this sort of thing, even in Italy to this day, where people who own an, an olive uh, grove will... Uh, for the season in which they need to harvest the olives. We'll go out and find people, laborers, people in the village to come and help, help, help get the harvest in quickly because we need to get the olives in while they're ripe and exactly the right time. And so he goes into the marketplace and he starts finding, this is Matthew 20, he starts finding laborers, guys who are just hanging around by the well, you know, waiting for work. They don't have their own property, they don't have their own farms, they're just wasting their time, but they need work, so they, they wait in the marketplace. And he goes, and he, he goes at, at 6 o'clock in the morning, and he gathers, he finds a few guys there, the eager ones, the hard-working guys, the guys who know they need work that day to put food on the table for their children. And he finds them, he says, come work on my vineyard, and I'll pay you one denarius for a day's labor. And they're like, great, that's a fair deal. I'm going to go and work. And so they set their mind to work for 12 hours that day. They're going to work from dawn until dusk. But he knows he's not got enough workers. So he goes out at 9 o'clock, finds a few more. Okay, so these guys have rolled out of bed, but they're here. Okay, guys, come and work on my vineyard. Then he goes back to the marketplace at 12 o'clock. Now, these guys are a bit late. So they shouldn't really have expected work. But he's like, okay, you guys can come. You can come and work, and I'll pay you. Goes out at 3 o'clock. I don't know who these guys are. They've probably been drunk all night. They finally rolled out of bed. And then he goes out at 5 o'clock. And this is literally how Jesus tells the story. No, not literally, because I'm embellishing a little bit here. But he does tell those time periods. He says he goes out 6, 9, 12, 3, and 5. 5 o'clock. They've got about an hour's work to do. And then when it's time at the end of the day for these guys to get paid for their day's labor, he tells the man who carries the money to pay them in reverse. So he starts with the five o'clock guys, and they get paid a denarius. Then he starts working backwards. And the guys who have been working longer are suddenly purring inside because they're thinking, well, if you paid those guys a denarius, imagine how much money I'm going to get. I work 12 times as long as them. And then they, their faces and their hearts drop as they suddenly realize he's paying us all the same wages. That's incredibly unfair. So Jesus explains. He says the last will be first and the first last. And in case you think this is just a parable, Jesus does it himself when he's dying on the cross. And the thief turns to him and says, Jesus, remember me when I come into your kingdom. They're dying side by side on the cross. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
Now, he's not even the five o'clock worker. He's the 5.57 worker who's worked for not even three minutes in the vineyard. And Jesus says, I'm going to lavish grace upon you. This is how grace works. It's ridiculously unfair and disproportionate. You remember, against the context of how God has analyzed our hearts and he's seen our unclean motives and our defilement, and he says... I still bless you. And in case you're wondering, well, how, how does this, how, what kind of logic, what kind of spiritual reason is there for this? The only answer that the Bible gives us is that Christ himself is worthy and you are in Christ. I want to explain this more in a couple of moments. But just note one other thing in this, in this section before we move to the last bit. He also highlights for us what you can kind of think of as the danger of grace. This is why God says to them, he says to them more than once, he says it twice, I believe. Consider, he says to them, from this day onward. It's almost like he says, if you've got a, if you've got a diary, write this down. Write down the date. Take note. Today, from this day onwards, you're going to experience my blessing. Now, why does he have to underline this for them repeatedly? Simply because we have a, an unwavering ability to forget how much the blessings that we enjoy are coming from God. So you imagine two or three years down the line, these guys are feeling really prosperous. They, their bellies are growing. They've got more food than they'd imagined they'd ever have because they've practically forgotten the lean years. And they're enjoying life. And they fail to make the association that this was God's grace to them. Now, friends, this is something that you and I do all the time. When you wake up ungrateful, whenever somebody walks away from God, it is always because of this essential forgetfulness. You didn't take note that the blessings you've experienced in life have always been the grace of God to you. So note that, he says. Let's bring us to the final section. And this is how the whole book closes. I say the whole book. It's a pretty short book, I know. But this is, in many ways, the, the focus, the climax, the purpose, the explanation, the spiritual reason and logic behind the whole of what's going on in the book of Haggai. And it has to do with the centrality of Jesus in the way God deals with us. Jesus be the center we were singing is exactly where it brings us at the end here. We read these last verses, how the word of God came to Haggai again on that same day. And he's, he is a, he's to address the rubber bell and tell him that he's going to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow all the other kingdoms. And then let's bring it to that last verse. I just want you to focus on verse 23. He says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, what we need to do is just very quickly understand what is going on here, and then I'm going to tell you to connect it with what we've been talking about. Zerubbabel himself was a fairly inconsequential man in the history of Israel. He wasn't even actually a full king. He was descended from the kings, but he was only a kind of governor because they were still under Persian rule. 
And Darius is not going to make him king, because that is to make him a ruler on, as an equal with him. So Zerubbabel is kind of not really much in the, great, in the history of things. And so when God says this incredibly high language about him, you've got to understand he's not actually talking about Zerubbabel himself. And we've seen this pattern all the way through the Bible. God, for example, when he's addressing David and saying to David, I'm going to give you a kingdom, David, that will never end. And David will sit on, my, on, his, on the throne that I give him forever. The language that he says in 2 Samuel 7 and in many of the Psalms, he's not talking about David. He's talking about David's greatest son, the one who would descend from David, Jesus Christ. Now the sharp-eyed among you, when you've read your Gospels, might have noticed that Zerubbabel's name comes up twice in the New Testament, in Matthew and Luke, in the genealogies of Jesus Christ. How amazing that 600 years before those Gospels were written, a prophecy about this relatively unimportant man would find its fulfillment in his son, his descendant, the great man, the king, Jesus. And you need to fix in your heart this one thing, that God is expressing through this language his delight in Zerubbabel, Jesus. His favor. He says to him that I'll make you like a signet ring. Do you know what a signet ring is? In more recent history, when the king's of England or a baron or a knight would sign a letter. They would not only sign it with their signature, but then they would seal the letter with the wax seal with their signet ring. Of course, they didn't use the same method back in Zerubbabel's time. I believe the signet ring would have been impressed upon the clay if they were to inscribe a message on clay or to write a law on the clay. But it's the same principle. This thing is very precious And it's a mark of permission and authority. And God's saying to Zerubbabel and through him to Jesus, my favor is upon you, my permission, the authority to rule the universe is given to you, my son. All the way through the Old Testament, the the prophecies that surround Jesus carry this sense of the weightiness of what he would carry and of God's delight upon him. I think about places like Psalm 89. Again, this is the kind of example where he's using a language and he's speaking as though to David, but really it doesn't mean David. It means David's greater son. So you pick it up from verse 24 of Psalm 89. It says, My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. And so this sentiment gets echoed. And Jesus is baptized by John, and as he comes up out of the water, and the dove descends upon him and lands upon him, which marks the Holy Spirit's favor and anointing upon him for the the calling to which he's being called as ruler. God's voice begins to echo out from the heavens. You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. 
The reason why this is so important for us to understand and connect with everything that we've been saying so far is that the grace of God that you and I experience, this unfair, disproportionate grace that is poured out upon your life, even though you've done nothing to deserve it, but turned to him in dependence. The reason why God lavishes you with love is primarily because he loves the Son. It says in the book of Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I think this is one of the most mysterious and difficult concepts to get your head around. What does it mean to be in Christ? But one thing it means for certain is that the favor that God feels towards his son, the love and delight that God feels towards Jesus, is the same favor and love and delight that he pours upon his people when you become part of Christ's body, when you are joined to him, when you are in him. And of course, nothing of that has to do with your loveliness, your cleanness, your worthiness. And it is entirely to do with everything that Christ has has won for you. His worthiness, his greatness, the favor that God feels towards his son. And it's not to diminish your sense of personhood or the the love that God feels for you personally, but it was always God's decision, as it were, to kind of hide you behind Jesus, to protect you from his anger for your sin by putting you behind the son, So that the Son would carry the full weight of God's anger on the cross. And all that would be left for you in God exhausting his anger upon the cross would be the favor and love and delight that he has upon the Son is now yours in Christ. Nothing of that is fair. It means that the thief on the cross, all he does is reach out, as it were, and touch Jesus and he becomes part of Christ's body. And from that moment onwards, his record is entirely obliterated. He did nothing. And God sees him with as much love and favor as he sees Jesus dying next to him. This means that Christ is the dividing line. It means that he's the one who separates humanity. The only important question at the end of the day, when all is said and done, is whether you and I belong to Jesus. These same lines, you know in the book of Haggai, we keep coming across these lines that God says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And the idea is that as he shakes the heavens and the earth, everything that he is not happy with falls away. And all that's remaining is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I tried to explain to you that that is exactly what God has been doing through history. We're seeing the kingdom of Christ burgeoning and growing and becoming more powerful as Jesus rules and wins hearts and minds across nations from every corner of the earth. And as that's happening, God's shaking the earth. That's why we don't despair. When crazy men are elected into powerful positions, because God is shaking the earth. And those kingdoms won't stand. 
The only one that matters at the end of the day is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's why in the book of Hebrews at the end, towards the end, chapter 12, he, he takes up this language from Haggai. He says, when he echoes it, yet once more, I'll shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And then he explains it to us. And he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The purging fire of God is at work in the world, he's saying. Shaking things up. Rendering things unpredictable and dangerous and scary. But through it all, God is at work to establish that the kingdom of Jesus will never fail. Which is why I say to you as we close this book, the only thing that matters is whether you belong to Jesus. The only thing that matters is whether you are in Christ, whether he is your king, whether you have surrendered to him as Lord. Yes, we're imperfect in the way that God described here. Like the pigeon soup, unfortunately, so unedible. But God deals with us in ways that are disproportionately good when we come to him, when we turn to him, when we depend on him. And the only reason is because we are connected with our Savior Jesus, the great hero of our faith. Can we stand together and worship him? Jesus, I praise you and thank you that you are always the intention. The Father always had you in mind. Even before the foundation of the world, the Bible says that the Lamb was slain. You were the focus, you were the end, you were always the intention. The Father delights in you, and we want to delight in you also. The Father's chosen you. And we also hail you as King. And the Father's appointed you, made you like a signet ring, and you placed that seal upon our foreheads and said to us that we belong to you. The Father's given you a throne, the same throne from which you now rule our hearts and lives. And the Father's given you power to bless, and we've experienced favor in you. And the Father exhausted his wrath against our sin when you died on the cross. We know that our sins, past, present, and yet to come, were dealt with there. Seemingly so unfairly, and yet you're just in your ways. Thank you that you breathe your spirit upon us, the gift of your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to respond to you, Lord Jesus, with total devotion, with total commitment, with absolute love that engulfs every part of our being, every fiber, heart, soul, mind, and strength, honoring you, loving you, But thank you that your favor does not depend upon that. Your favor is unfair. 
Your grace is unfair. And we're the beneficiaries, Lord, of the fact that you lavish it upon us. I know many of us feel deeply unworthy. Help us to walk under the sunshine of your grace and to know that you love us, that you smile upon us. For those, Lord, who have not come to that point of humility, of recognizing their need for you, bring them to that point, Lord. Do it, kind Father. Amen.